we are in Deuteronomy 7 through 9 tonight, and uh, before we do, I want to review the key words that we have been discussing from time to time. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but I want to review this so you keep these in your mind as we go along. The word command, some form of the word command or commands, commandment, law, statutes, uh, covenant. Actually, I added that word covenant uh, because that is, uh, if you took notes, the word covenant was not on that first list. I added that, and it would come up. I think that's synonymous with what we see, but if you add all that up, that's 149 times we see that listed in the book of Deuteronomy. Bless and curse, or blessing and curse, uh, if-then phrase, Equated with that, we see that about 59 times. The word heart is one I've inserted recently, and I'll tell you in just a moment why. The word heart is mentioned 46 times in the book. The words fear, or some form of these words, fear, afraid, courage, 41 times. The word remember, or do not forget, or lest you forget, 22 times. And the word, or the phrase, the actual phrase, God shall choose, uh, that's an actual phrase we'll see more as we go on in the book. Now, where are we in the outline? Uh, <clears throat> this is something I inserted as well, and from time to time when you study, I like to kind of re-outline things. And I, I'm going to, after a closer look at chapters 5 through 11, I think we can probably segregate those from what we had before, what we had previously, we put that in with restating the covenant laws. As taking a closer look at it, I think chapters 5 through 11, he's preparing their hearts for Canaan, for entering Canaan and all that they're going to face and and endure as they go into the land and all that they need to remember and do as they do such. I want you to think about, just imagine you're a military leader of a large group of people, let's say about 2 million people, And it is your job to make sure they get into battle and they're prepared in every way. There's a couple of different ways a military leader might look at his job. First of all, there's the physical aspect of making sure your troops are physically fit, that they've got the armament, the weapons that they need, tanks and so forth. And then the other aspect, the very large aspect, is making sure that they're mentally prepared for battle. If you don't take care of that one, then what good does it do to have the most sophisticated weapons that there are? But as we look at Deuteronomy, as God is preparing his people, we don't see anything mentioned about the physical aspect so much. God is going to take care of the logistics. God is going to take care of getting them there and taking care of the enemy. But what God is not going to do is force them to have the right kind of heart, right kind of mindset to go into the land. That's why he mentions, do not fear, do not be afraid. Don't forget my laws over and over again. So we, God is focusing, if you compare it to a military leader, God is focusing on the mindset. You know, if you can infiltrate the troops and break down their will and break down their courage, you have defeated the enemy. And uh, so I want to think about that as we look at chapters 5 through 11. Think about God is preparing their hearts for the entry into the land of Canaan. 
All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's go over the questions here first on Deuteronomy 7. What is stated about those or about these seven nations that he mentions here in this chapter? They're stronger than Israel. They're stronger, they're greater and mightier than you. And in regard to marriages, what did God command? Don't make marriages with them. Describe those that do not hate God. Now, this is a little bit odd wording, and I, I admit that because when I went back and read it myself, I thought, what was I thinking about when I asked that question? <laughs> but describe those that do not hate God is found in verse 8 of the chapter. I don't know if anybody caught what I was looking for or not. If you didn't, that's okay. They, they love God. They love God. They keepeth the oath and the covenant. Covenant, you remember, is between two people. God can't just make a covenant by himself. He has to have the agreement, as in Exodus 24, on behalf of the people, that they will keep the covenant. To what extent would the Lord bless them? I'm sorry, I didn't catch you. Okay, they would be blessed in uh, many different ways in their, their, their daily life, their family, and their crops. Rather than fearing these mighty nations, what should they remember? Call to, call to mind, call to remembrance. God and Pharaoh. God and Pharaoh, how he dealt with Pharaoh, how he dealt with Egypt. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and shall cast out many nations before thee, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, seven, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. It was, it's interesting, too, that... Here at the outset of this chapter, we see that God is forthright in explaining to them, these people are greater and mightier than you in whose eyes? In man's eyes. God knows that there, there are no challenge, right? So these nations are greater and mightier than you are in the eyes of man. When the Lord thy God, verse 2, shall deliver them up before thee, and thou shalt smite them, then shalt thou utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy. Verse 3 goes on, you will not make marriages. And verse 4 would indicate that you will not deal or not have any relationship with their gods. So at verses 1 through 5, God says, you go into the land of Canaan, you have no covenant with these people, you have no mercy upon these people, you have no marriages with your children and their children, and no idols. Maybe it goes without saying, but what's involved with the idea of utterly destroying these people? Everybody. What if someone says, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just fit in with you and we will worship your God and we'll get along and we'll be the best neighbors that you ever had. What, what if they say that? 
Mm -hmm. They've broken the covenant. God said, it's already been determined at this point, God is ready to destroy these people. He, this is a commandment. Verse 2, don't make any mistake. Verse 2 is a commandment. Utterly destroy them. God is, his long-suffering is over with these people, and he is ready to wipe them out completely. All of them, all of their idols, what are they to do with the idols that these people are so infiltrated with? Wipe them out, get rid of them idols, those idols, so, and get rid of those, uh, and don't make any marriages with them. Why do you suppose that God is so strong on this particular idea? Why does he want to remove these people, their idols, and have no marriages with these people? Verse 4 says they would turn their hearts away from God. We can just look at what happened in Judges chapter 3. When, when Joshua died, another generation came along, and the hearts of the people went right to those who followed the ways of the Canaanites. Would it be okay to have a little pocket of Canaanites here and there just scattered out as long as they keep to themselves? No. You see, I'm trying to get us to understand that God said utterly destroy these people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we are told something of a similar nature. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says. And we can apply that principle in many different ways and should, not simply to just marriages. We need to apply that principle to every aspect of our lives. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 6 and see what he says there to us in a similar fashion, similar type idea, even though he doesn't use the phrase utterly destroy, the principle is there. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness and iniquity? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ and Belial? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye, or for we are a temple of the living God, even as God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, he said, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be to you a father, and you shall be to me sons and daughters. This is why God tells the Israelites, you go in and you utterly destroy them. Their influence upon you is going to be very dangerous. It's going to be the type that will cause you to lose your soul. Now, as we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5, notice what he says to do with the idols. How extensive are they to take care of the idols? Verse 5, he says, you shall Thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. So many times what happened when they went into the land of Canaan, they would leave these high places, these nice 
places up high on a mountain, a very beautiful place, and they would leave those. And God said, no, get rid of all of that. And what happened eventually, the people of God would be found worshiping upon those high places where God did not choose for them to worship. Everything that leaves any trace of a Canaanite, God says, utterly destroy that. And we can make so many parallels to our life today, such as we saw in 2 Corinthians 6, how we are to utterly destroy the influence that is affecting us, get rid of it. What happens if I become a Christian and I hold on to this and I hold on to that part, but the rest of my life is devoted to God? Can that be? Is that possible? No. God does not take divided service, does he? We have to utterly destroy all those influences, all those things that contaminate us in our spiritual lives. Any thoughts or comments so far? All right, let's continue on verse 6 through, uh, verse six through 11. God says, For thou art a holy people, in verse 6, unto thy, the Lord thy God, Jehovah thy God, hath chosen thee to be a people for his own possession, above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. He actually began choosing them when Abraham was just one person. Verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath. Now why did God do all, why is God about to give them to the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey? Why is he giving them that? Verse 8 says, because God loves you and keeps the oath. He swore that oath unto Abraham in Genesis 12. Now tie this verse into chapter 9, verse 5. We're not going to look at it in detail at this moment, but I want you to look at two reasons here in this particular section of Deuteronomy, why God is doing what he's doing. Verse 8 of this chapter says, because God loves you and he keeps his oath. Chapter 9, verse 5 says, it is because or not because of your righteousness. It is because of the wickedness of those nations that are there that you're to utterly destroy. So there's two large reasons there why God says he's allowing this to happen. Unless they think, get all high and mighty and think it is their righteousness, God corrects that swiftly. Now let's go down to verse 12. God chose you because, as we see in verse 6 through 11, because he loves you and he's keeping his oath. He's keeping his promise. <clears throat> verse 12, it shall come to pass because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them that the Lord thy God will keep with thee the covenant and loving kindness which he swore unto thy fathers. And he goes and explains in verse 13 and 14 some categories where he is going to bless them as they go into the land of Canaan. You can break these categories down, I think, into three large categories. That is the family, their uh, family, their fields, and their flocks. 
Look at verse 13. He will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will bless the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground, thy grain and thy new wine, thine oil, the increase of thy cattle, the young of thy flock, and the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. And you will be blessed above all peoples. And all the sickness in verse 14, or rather verse 15, all the sickness that you knew in Egypt, he says you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about those sicknesses that they had there. I will put those upon those that hate you. Now verse 17 through 26. Verse 17 and 18, what does God say in response when you go in and you say, well, how can I dispossess this people? How can I utterly destroy them? How can we do this, what you've commanded us to do? As if to say that we're afraid. We go, these people, as you said, God, are greater than, and mightier than we are. So how can we do this? And what's the response to that? Remember. Remember. Remember what? We've talked uh, the last couple of weeks, I think, about remember Egypt. The idea of Egypt and the people being taken out of bondage and by God's strong and mighty hand is a, is a topic all throughout the Bible. And this great feat is repeated over and over for us to see many, many times throughout the Bible and not just in Deuteronomy or not just in Joshua. God says, look, remember what your eyes saw, verse 19 and 20 or verse 19, what you saw in Egypt, how I took you out of a nation by someone that was strong and mighty, perhaps the strong and, strongest and mightiest nation in that era, and richest, by the way, too. Verse 22, God says, I will cast out those nations before thee little by little and not consume them all at one time because the beast of the field may increase upon thee and it will not be for your benefit. Verse 22 says, we're going to do this a little at a time. And think about wartime, how ravaged a, a, a land can become if it is taken too quickly and wartime will just eat up a land. God says, we're going to do this a little at a time lest the beast come in and uh, become your enemy and consume and, and, and the beast of the field increase upon thee. Now go down to verse 25. The graven images of the gods, you go into the land, the graven images of those people's gods, what are you to do with those? We've already seen that, but what does he repeat here once again? Don't be tempted to do what? It's made of gold and silver, might be a very valuable piece to have, so what would be the temptation? Keep it. Who do you recall in Joshua 7 that did such a thing? Achan. Achan did that. You can tie that into this verse here. Achan actually uh, broke that commandment. God said in verse 26, It is a devoted thing. You to utterly abhor it, remove it, destroy it completely. Even though you might justify it and say, oh, I can use this gold and silver, perhaps in the temple. Maybe I can take it as an offering to the temple. God doesn't allow that either. He said, destroy it. 
get rid of it. Any thoughts on chapter 7? Yes. Uh, Moses had already set the example for that when they made the golden calf. You remember what he did with it? He ground it up in the powder and threw it in the stream. There was not going to be one bit of that thing they could recover. Mm -hmm. Very, very good parallel. Did I hear another? I was just going to say it's interesting. He told them how they should feel about it too, that they should detest it and abhor it, yeah. not just what they should do, but how they should feel. Right. This is getting to that heart issue that we talked about earlier. He's tried to <clears throat> work on their heart, get their hearts prepared to enter Canaan. They're going to see idols everywhere. What happens if I took, take one of them and put them in my pocket and nobody sees it? Again, that's that idea of the heart. Abhor it, hate it. That's why we violate 2 Corinthians 6. As we read earlier, we don't hate sin enough and we allow it to influence us too much in our lives. Another thing I wanted to mention before we leave this chapter, how, and we'll see this more, is how God is very forthright. He's already told them the enemy is greater and mightier than you. It reminds me how in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, God tells us that the devil is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He tells us exactly how fierce the enemy is. The cost of discipleship is mentioned in Matthew chapter 10. It ends with pretty much the idea in verse 28 that he may destroy your body, but be rather fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Your cost of discipleship, what is it? Matthew 10 says, it may even cost us our life, but God throughout that chapter is, is explaining the, how much it costs us to be a disciple of Christ. There's several other things he mentions, persecution, imprisonment, and he ends that, that context with talking about the idea of you may have to give your life. So God is very forthright. He tells us how strong the enemy is. He doesn't deceive us in any way. And this is so we can know and be prepared so our hearts are ready to enter Canaan, so our hearts are devoted to our Christianity. All right, chapter 8. Chapter 8 questions what resulted from their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. God took care of the completion. Okay. God took care of them, provided for their needs. He proved them in verse 2 as well. Uh, with this multitude of blessings, they were warned of what? Don't forget God. Don't forget God. And what? By my own power. This, that's why I have these things is because of my uh, abilities, my power, my might. 
Chapter 8, all the commandment which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers that thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God hath led thee these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble thee, prove thee to know what was in your, there's that word again, the heart, know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread alone. That's quoted again by someone in the New Testament, isn't it? Matthew chapter 4. Who quoted that? Jesus did, didn't he? In his temptations. The devil said, make these stones bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, which says more than just simply bread, doesn't it? In the wilderness, their dependence on God was every day, wasn't it? Every day, if they wanted to eat, they needed that manna. They needed that showed them and it proved them. God tested them humbled them to make sure they understood where did that manna come from? How could you go that many days and that many years and not realize that God is taking care of you? How can we go that many days with even more and not realize that God is taking care of us? Man does not live by bread alone. That's the lesson that God was teaching them in the wilderness. In verse 7, the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Now you see two extremes here. God proved them. He presented, and he presents here, two extremes in verse 1 through 10. One is an extreme of want in the wilderness, and the other extreme is of plenty. Lands, vineyards, Olive trees, fig trees, everything. It was a, basically a, what we call a turnkey operation. All you got to do is turn the key, open the door, and you're ready. It's there, ready for you. God presents these two extremes, if you will, the want and the need in the wilderness and the good land that you have. Now he's going to draw a lesson on that particular idea as we go to verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Beware lest you forget thy God in not keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou have eaten and art full and built goodly houses and dwelt therein, when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and silver and gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where was no water, who brought thee forth out of the rock, uh, water out of the rock of flint, he fed thee in the wilderness with manna. God is saying, be careful. Remember where you came from. Remember the want you had in the wilderness. And I don't think we truly 
can understand the power that God had. Imagine if you were responsible for taking care of two million people in a wilderness and it was your job to make sure that they were fed and given water in a wilderness. You can't pull up a truckload of skids of bottled water. You can't go to the nearest Kroger. I don't think we understand what power God manifested in, in his providence in the land of Canaan by providing for their every, every need. They had everything they needed, didn't they? They had everything they needed. Now, verse 11 through verse 20, there's a warning here. Don't become self-reliant. In verse 17, he says, When all this happens, you get in the land of Canaan, have all these things, you say in your heart, there's that word heart again, verse 17, My power and my might are the reasons that I have these things. And notice they're saying this in their heart. And it's just as bad if we say it in our heart as if we say it out loud, isn't it? My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. My clever abilities and my ingenuity, my blood, sweat, and tears, that's why I've got what I've got. That's the idea of self-reliance, isn't it? You know, God provides in poverty and he provides in prosperity. It's the same God either way, isn't it? It's the same God. Same God that provided for them in the wilderness. It's the same God that provided for them in the land of Canaan. In poverty, do we trust God? Sometimes it, when we say as, as we hit rock bottom, it's then we start looking up and we start realizing our dependence on God. But in prosperity, do we still trust God? Or do we trust our bank account? Do we trust our insurance plan? Our 401k plan? Our retirement plan? Our pension plan? Do we trust an inheritance that we may be looking to? You know, too many times I think we fall back and we think, well, I'm, I'm set. I'm okay. Because I was so clever and so smart to put away a little bit in the bank and, and save up. What does God say about that? Who provided? What's the lesson here in this chapter? Who provided in poverty or prosperity, either extreme and anything in between, who provided for that? It's God. God is saying when you go into the land of Canaan and you receive all these things, don't forget. Don't forget. It's God who provides for that. The question may be what is it we are doing with what God provides? So prosperity brings with it and produces sometimes, unfortunately, forgetfulness on our part. 
God says, remember, from slavery to the promised land, I've taken care of you. And all in between, I've taken care of your needs. Everything that you needed. But we see in verse 17, sometimes self takes the glory, doesn't it? Self takes the glory. Look what I've done. Look what I've built. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I have done. But God says, don't forget me. We could easily fall into that trap, can't we? The prosperity that we live in today, so easy to just to rely on all of these things that we mentioned. Our 401k, is that going to take care of you? And then we retire and we think, well, that's going to take care of me at old age. Is it? Is that what's really taking care of you? Any thoughts on chapter 8? Yes, got one back here. The last, uh, while you're going there, the last uh, paragraph there, he's going to say, remember God. Last few verses of that section, remember God. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar was taught a lesson by God about thinking that he's the one that was the sole provider of Babylon and all the wonderful things that he did in his kingdom. Was humbled, wasn't he? he? Taught a lesson. Very good. Any other thoughts on chapter eight? I think it's interesting when you take the warning here in Deuteronomy, and then you look at the Old Testament account of the nation. Uh, time has a way of just wearing us down, and so you think about you know the generation that was with Joshua and those elders that are. Uh, at least get them through the conquering of the land, but so quickly, you know, there's enough time, the next generation or the next, they start forgetting, mm-hmm. and they forget by the choices of their actions. Yeah. And that's the very idea presented in uh, Joshua. After Joshua died, or rather judges, I should say, when Joshua died, that next generation, they came along, they have forgotten God. The very thing that we're talking about here, as you mentioned, they had forgotten God. God warns them. Again, why have we seen so many times throughout the book, God said, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Remember, it's because the next generation came and they had forgotten. Okay, chapter 9. For what does Moses prepare the Israelites Verse 1, you're going to go into a land, these nations are greater and mightier. What were they not to say in their heart? Verse 5, that is their righteousness. How does Moses describe their character? Stubborn. They're very stubborn. They're stiff-necked. How long have they been rebellious? Since Egypt. Since Egypt. Verse 7. Who interceded for them here in this chapter, the last paragraph? Moses did. Deuteronomy 9. Hear, O Israel, there are to pass over the Jordan this day and to go in to dispossess 
nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Atticum, who thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before these people? But not a very good lead-in if you're trying to get people motivated, is it? These people are greater and mightier than you, but have no fear. God is on your side. Know therefore this day that the Lord thy God, verse 3, is he who goeth over before thee as a devouring fire. He will destroy them, and he focuses on he. He will bring them down before thee, so shalt thou drive them out and make them to perish quickly. Verse 5. Now, what happens if you get into the land of Canaan and you look back and you think, wow, we drove these people out. What happened? Well, it's because we are a great and righteous people, isn't it? Verse 9, he says, I didn't do this for your righteousness, because of your righteousness, or for the uprightness of thy heart, dost thou go in to possess the land. But for two things he mentions, because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out, and that he may establish the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So note verse 5, he says, not because of your righteousness, but because of two reasons, because of their wickedness and because of the oath or the promise that is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thy fathers. And we could go back to Genesis 15 and, and see the idea where it's first mentioned there. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. God is now ready to bring that to fulfillment here in the land of Canaan, where he is ready to utterly destroy these Amorite people. Verse 6. Well, let me catch up with the outline here. Warning. Another warning that we see. Self-righteousness. All throughout this book, all throughout this chapter, rather, God is saying you will receive the gift of Canaan, but it's not because of your righteousness. He says, as a matter of fact, verse 6, he begins to explain to them, if you really want to go there and talk about this, verse 6, he says, really, you're a stiff-necked people. Verse 7 indicates that you have been stiff-necked all the way from the time you came out of Egypt, verse 7, until the time you've come to this place, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord your God. You can't say it's because of your righteousness that we are allowed the blessing of Canaan. God says you're stiff-necked. In the following verses there, he mentions a particular event, actually spends quite a bit of time on this event. And what is that? First case is the golden calf. In Exodus 32, Moses was up in the mount. The people are tired of waiting. It's only been a few days, but they're tired of waiting. So they decide to build a calf, a golden calf, that represents their leader now. And God says in verse 12, going down to Deuteronomy 9, verse 12, God said to Moses while he was up in the mount, said, Get down, the people that you have brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image, a golden calf. Behold, I've seen this people, and it is a stiff-necked people. 
it is a stiff-necked people for sure. Let me alone that I may destroy them. Verse 14, 15, he says, Moses, I will make of you, let me destroy these people, I will make of you a great nation. And you shall receive my blessings. So I looked down, verse 16, he said, Behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made a molten calf. You turned aside quickly out of the way. And Moses cast the two the tables, even symbolically representing the broken commandment in verse 17. And what did Moses do? Actually, first he pleads on behalf of Aaron, verse 20. The Lord was angry with Aaron. I prayed for him at that time. And notice he picks back up. He spends more time on the golden calf. But in verse 22 and 23, he mentions four other occasions here. First, the golden calf. And then next is the uh, mention of Taborah. If you recall, this is in the, where the burning of the fire was out on the outer edges of the camp. The people were murmuring, and God allowed that fire to get closer to them, to teach them a lesson, to uh, get their attention, if you will. This was a murmuring people. He said, remember Taborah. You're a stiff-necked people. You can't take credit for Canaan because of your righteousness. You are a stiff-necked people. Verse 22, he mentions Massa. I think we talked about that last week. Massa means tempting God. And they had tempted God and asked for water in Exodus 17. And by the way, that particular murmuring actually took place not long after they had received the manna. They had received the food God gave them with the manna. And you think that they would realize that God is going to take care of them. But yet again, in Exodus 17, they murmur for water. And God says that place is called Massa. Also at Kibroth Hateava. Do you think God is trying to get them to never, ever, ever forget what happened at those places? Moses is bringing up the past. He's talking negative again. He's preaching a negative sermon once again. But he's trying to get them to remember the past. Remember history. Don't repeat history. Remember at Kibroth Hateava. They had lusted for food, for fish, the leeks, onions, and the melons. God gave them quail. How many quail? You remember how many quail God gave them? So much they were swimming in quail. Remember this place. You've tempted me, murmured for food. God said also remember Kadesh Barnea, verse 23. Kadesh Barnea is sort of the headquarters there at the point where God sent out, they sent out the spies, they came back with a bad report, and they murmured, they complained, they actually just didn't believe. They feared 
the giants in the land of Canaan and their disbelief caused their wandering in the wilderness. And God says, don't forget, Kadesh Barnea. All these places God remembers. Remember what happened here? Remember what happened here? Remember what happened here? Yeah, they remember. There's certainly a generation there that knew. Then at verse 25 through the end of the chapter, Moses intercedes. So I fell down and before the Lord 40 days and nights that I fell down because the Lord said he would destroy you and I prayed unto the Lord. Now he picks back up with this idea how he interceded in Exodus 32 and 33 on their behalf. And as we look at a time like this, Moses is probably reminding them that he is the only thing that stood between them and perishing. God was ready to destroy them. Moses interceded for them. And I think about Romans 5, verse 8. In that while we were yet ungodly, while we were yet weak, who died for those of us who were ungodly and sinners? Who interceded on our behalf? It's Christ. Christ. Moses here is typified of a type of Christ that would intercede and save the people. That's what Moses did. That's what Christ does for us. Christ is what stood between us and destruction and perishing. So we better stop there. Appreciate your...